part of teams actually, you know, picking up the phone and, and calling one another, you really rely on those platforms to kind of share information and build, more importantly, a, a common operating picture for the COCOM commander so that he has best understanding of the situation on the ground. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot. I'll be your host for today's episode. We're joined today by two authors and current members of Army Civil Affairs. We have Valor Breeze, Sergeant First Class. He's currently serving as the S9 NCO of 1st Battalion 3rd Special Forces Group. And Jarrett Redman, who's a captain, currently serving as the CMOC Chief of Delta Company 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion. Gentlemen, thank you for being here on the 1CA podcast. Uh, thanks for having us. We're looking forward to talking with you tonight. We wanted to talk about an article that you wrote for the Civil Affairs Association, published by PKSOI, the Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute. Um, it's published in Volume 4 of the 2017-2018 Civil Affairs Issue Papers called Civil Affairs, A Force for Consolidating Gains. And this was edited by Christopher Holschek, who is a retired colonel and senior leader of the Civil Affairs Association. Can you talk to us, gentlemen, about the title of your paper and summarize what it meant? Yeah, so if, if I could actually just a little background. Um, Valor and I were, were fortunate enough to, to work together uh, downrange. We basically uh, stood up the 83rd. CMOC at uh, U.S. Army Africa, um, and at the time that the Civil Affairs Association issued their, their call for papers looking at ways that the regiment could, could consolidate gains, we were basically already kind of looking at that. In fact, I was working, General Harrington at the time, the commander of USRAP, was, uh, he'd already stood up an operational planning team looking at ways that we could set the African theater uh, and basically ensure that in the event of a conflict, we could go seamlessly across the, the phases of uh, the continuum of military operations from phase zero, uh, setting the theater all the way through um, enabling civil authorities and, uh, and stabilizing an area and then transitioning back to phase zero operations. Also, uh, it, it, it kind of fit because the problems that we were looking at as a CMOC was the, the factor of us having multiple teams, um, throughout the continent and then, you know, other, uh, the other divisions of civil affairs also having multiple teams and kind of having to work with us accomplishing our missions that in conjunction with them doing their missions that, uh, overcoming, trying to work together, um, you know, and any hurdles. And so when the, the time for writing this paper actually came, it was something that was on our mind and something that we were dealing with actively on a daily basis. Gentlemen, what does consolidating gains mean to you? One of the things we looked at, and we were, uh, again, we were just kind of fortunate circumstances. Uh, our S3 at the time had, had re written a, a paper previously for the Civil Affairs Association. And one of the points he, he mentioned, Major Clay Daniels, was that if we take uh, Clausewitz's theory that war is politics by other means, and politics is ultimately about
about people, then logically war is a tool to shape and influence people, militaries, and governments towards the achievement of objectives uh, outlined in the national security strategy. And I, I think really that was what we were trying to get at is the military spends a, a lot of time in pre-mission planning, setting conditions for phase three of, of the operation, which is you know active military operations, but spend substantially less time looking at phase four and phase five and really your, your exit strategy. So figuring out what the desired end state is and what sort of sustainable political outcome that the military operations are ultimately going to decide. Yeah, um, in my opinion, going along with that, going back to what you were saying uh, earlier, Jared, you know, when our goal is, when our stated goal is to be ready to um, go forward with any contingency that can happen on the continent, and then you look at what we have, we have, you know, uh, five teams right now, in six months we'll have five different teams, uh, the reserve state component has these number of teams. Uh, the 95th has these number of teams. If our goal is to get to anywhere to where is to get to a certain level of preparation, are we actually doing that every time these teams change over? Um, every time we move to a new location? Uh, if, we, if we've had a team in a country for six months and then on the next rotation we have no team there and we, have, we put the team somewhere else, have we actually gotten any closer to General Harrington's objective? That's that's just not my what I think of as consolidating games. I think when you look at the problem, the problem is we make all these games, and you can see the games in one deployment. But you know, are we keeping them and are we holding them to get towards that end state? If it's within the military's realm, then it's passing it from one team to the next to the next command that's stepping in. If the military is pulling away from the area, then it's consolidating games and passing along to partners and State Department or interagency partners who are going to carry the ball forward, if at all. Yeah, I think I think that's right. That would be the goal. Right. General, I want to read a quote for you from page two of your, of your paper and then ask you to explain in more detail. You wrote, quote, recent conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria have reemphasized that its competitive military advantage in technology and hardware has limits in terms of accomplishing long-term strategic political objectives. Could you explain what that means? Not to be too pessimistic, but the U.S. has spent more than 15 years now at war in Afghanistan. Uh, we've spent over $800 billion, uh, and right now, by most estimates, the government of Afghanistan controls about 60% of the country. The United States is transitioning, you know, based on our assessment of the strategic environment, we're focused heavily on uh, increasing the lethality of the Department of Defense. You know, I think all that makes sense in terms of the last 10 or 15 years, we've been focused a lot on non-state actors and networks. But ultimately, you know, in terms of military operations, the United States has had enormous success at the tactical and, uh, and even at the operational level where we're really struggling, uh, or at least our assessment, uh, is at the strategic level and consolidating those tactical military victories into something that's tangible and that's long-lasting. And that's really where we see, we see that CA could have uh, the most effect or has had the most effect, uh, but where we'd like to, to increase our focus. The human domain in which we operate 
in civil affairs could fill in that gap long-term and strategically that is created by the limitations on technology and hardware. That's right. Jared, thanks. Let me ask you a follow-up. Um, your team wrote regarding Crimea that, quote, there are crucial lessons to be learned from Russia's use of military force to achieve lasting political change. What do you think the lessons were uh, learned from Crimea? One of the things when we wrote our paper, we, we looked at a, uh, a study by uh, RAND, and one of their conclusions was that the Ukraine was an example of decisive and competent use of military force in pursuit of political ends. Uh, so ultimately, Russia was able to seize the territory of the neighboring state with speed and mobility. And although the authors cautioned, they said, you know, look, Russia benefited uh, from highly favorable circumstances, political, historical, geographical, and linguistic. Really, in our assessment, this is ultimately just more proof that, you know, soft imperative number one is understanding your operational environment. And uh, the reason that we have special operations forces is precisely because of their understanding of the human domain and of those political, historical, and geographical factors that made Russia successful uh, in their operations in Crimea. Yeah, there's a, there's a tie to uh, another episode we have in the 1CA podcast. Uh, it's already been posted, an interview that, um, that I conducted with a guy in my unit, actually, who's a specialist, but happens to have a PhD in um, Central Asia and Russian history. And he was talking about that as well. So it's yeah, there's a lot that civil affairs brings to the table, understanding that operational environment. And, and so you you found that the U.S. could learn from that lesson to look at our future operating environments. If we knew more about the history and the sociology, um, we could try to exploit that to the U.S. military's benefit. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think it's noteworthy, too, that, you know, in terms of the scale of the operations, it was it was a lot smaller than what you've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq by U.S. forces. They kept a lot smaller of a footprint. And, you know, again, one of the things that, that was mentioned in that RAND study was the speed of the chain of command and the ability, the decision-making ability, was something that differentiated military operations uh, that you've seen conducted by the Russians in the past. Gentlemen, I wanted to ask you the question about the long-term objective of conflicts. In the paper you had written that, quote, the objective of conflict is an enduring political end state. Do you think that's always the case? I think that war is incredibly costly, both in terms, financial terms, and then also, obviously, in terms of, you know, putting America's sons and daughters at risk. And so it's in nobody's best interest to have uh, a long-term war. So ultimately, the, the goal is to achieve a political end state as quickly and with it committing as few resources as possible. Jared, do you think that the enduring political end state could be seen from the perspective of U.S. interest politically? Or do you think it is from the perspective of the host nation or achieving a political end state for the uh, the locals in whichever country we're having a conflict with? Um, so I, I think what we're seeing right now in, in the 21st century is that uh, 
the two are usually in line with one another. Uh, you know, so September 11th, one of the reasons September 11th was able to happen was because there was a, a power vacuum in Afghanistan. Um, so we've decided it's in our strategic interest to have uh, strong governments that we can partner with in the Middle East uh, to tackle uh, non-state actors who, who have interests that are, are very different from our own. Right. Yeah, I mean, as civil affairs, our, our business is stability. You know, um, so this, that kind of, you know, that ties into everything we do in our civil affairs operations on the ground. And then in the, in the long-term view of it, you know, if we're not, like, we can, we can kind of think about whether we're, we're having a long-term, you know, political impact or not. But, you know, in the view of our short deployment cycles, the, the, the goal has got to be stability and how we're, achieving stability and that is from our civil affairs view america's interest the, the mission is always you know how are we bringing stability to this area how are we countering whatever destabilizing factors that goes exactly to what you're saying about um the taliban and afghanistan you know when, when you don't have we have a power vacuum like that or anything um it's destabilizing destabilizing the people and it brings insecurity for america regardless of where it is yeah, absolutely right. The Afghans are the ones who have to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis, but uh, I guess the United States is only involved really as long as um, our interests are somehow tied to the region or, or being, you know, having assets uh, like the U.S. military country. Shinalana, I wanted to ask you about uh, the Civil Affairs Regiment and whether the CA Regiment can lead efforts for consolidating gains through network engagement and using the SIM process civil information management process and the various technologies that we have? Definitely. So I, I think um, another thing about modern warfare that we're, we're increasingly realizing, and it's not just the military that's realizing it, it's a lot of private entities, and that's that civil information is incredibly valuable. Uh, so whether, whether that's um, social media and, uh, you know, you see a lot of private corporations that are, are using civil information or, or essentially civil data to increase their understanding of what the consumer is looking for and how people are spending their lives. Um, in a military sense, civil information enables us to set the conditions that reduce instability. So what basically when we were deployed at USRAP, the first part of our our deployment was just kind of understanding the U.S. AFRICOM bureaucracy, everything from the GCC to the TSOC, uh, and then they have a, you know, AFRICOM's a little bit different from some of the other COCOMs we've worked in, and uh, that they also have uh, C. Horn of Africa. Uh, and what we were seeing is that um, all the subcomponent commands within AFRICOM were going out and doing things like med caps, they were assessing hospitals, assessing partner nation capability, and they were essentially collecting civil information, which was incredibly valuable. But then what they were doing is they were they were coming back and that SIM was going in on multiple different platforms. Uh, and so in terms of setting the theater and preparing the theater for a conflict or an Ebola outbreak or whatever crisis U.S. AFRICOM will have to deal with in the future, there wasn't a central repository of information. So in essence, 
the Air Force could send a surgical team somewhere that there was a, uh, a military installation or to a, to a host station, and they would come back and the Air Force would have that information in their system, and then the Army would send the team down and do an assessment. And uh, if it, a lot of times that civil information, it was ending up in different systems, and it wasn't, uh, I think the more important point is, it wasn't being built up in a, in a, uh, in a way that was beneficial for U.S. foreign policy. Is there a solution to that? Is there future technology or future process that you've put in place to help fill that gap? So, I mean, the issue is that, you know, like in your question, you asked, you know, the same process. And I think that people confuse the same process, which is important, with their personal SIM platform. And then, so at USARAP, Right. What we were seeing was people, uh, different entities were wrapped up in their SIM platform and it became kind of a, like a, an ego pride thing. The greater good is to share this information. So like you were saying, Jared, um, remember one of the, the issues was uh, we were trying to landscape all the uh, ports and airfields and in, in kind of a preparation for if we had to go into Africa to do something. And what we found was, you know, the Air Force had this information, maybe had this information about ports, and, you know, there were different uh, government agencies, and there was no will to put them all in one place because everyone had their own platforms. Even um, USARAF had a, had a SIM platform that, in my personal opinion, was not conducive to accomplishing anything at all. And, and so the efforts to move away from that were difficult, and we, we moved to Palantir after much, you know, it was kind of a, a struggle, but it was, it was so effective showing that we could do things through our process, but to get other people on the same team, on the same platform, it's always a fight, and that's I've seen that in uh, theater after theater. It's always a fight to get people to, you know, work together on a shared platform because everyone's stuck with what theirs is. Yeah, and I, I mean, one example in particular, probably the most blatant example in, in my mind, we had civil affairs teams working under different authorities for different different uh, commands. So, you know, the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade, they were working under SOCAF under the PSOC. And then the 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion was working under the Army Subcomponent Command. In a lot of cases, they were working similar objectives, similar lines of effort in similar locations. So what we found when we were finally able to look at both platforms is different CA teams working under one under the TSOC and one under the subcomponent command had met with the same individual uh, and they built separate contact cards detailing, kind of building a profile on that person. And, you know, obviously this isn't in the best the best interest of U.S. foreign policy objectives in the region. Um, it's not the most conducive way of doing business. And short of teams actually, you know, picking up the phone and, and calling one another, you really rely on those platforms to kind of share information and build, more importantly, a, a common operating picture for the COCOM commander so that he has the best understanding of the situation on the ground. Right. So you're saying it's those platforms are tools to execute the SIM process, but the process involves six steps, which for the audience are collection, collation, processing, analyzing, production, and then finally dissemination. So regardless of which tools you're using, which platforms technology-wise, 
you can still collate data from other teams or other services and disseminate the information out to them as well so you don't have the sort of team fratricide. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Get published and win some money. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite you to send an originally written issue paper with recommendations related to some or all of .mil PFP. You should reference the new FM 3-57 in the Civil Affairs Operations 2025 and Beyond white paper. Given the white paper and the stabilization assistance framework, how can the CA regiment optimize its force? How can the Army and Marine Corps organize, train, educate, and resource CA forces to synchronize and leverage the efforts of multiple partners and sustain engagements to mitigate conflict, shape security environments, and prevail across the range of military operations? The top five papers will be published in the 2018-19 Civil Affairs Issue Papers. Authors will present them at the CA Centennial and Symposium at Fort Bragg, North Carolina on 2-4 November. The top paper will receive $1,000 cash, second gets $500, and third $250. Papers prepared jointly by civilian and military professionals are most welcome. The deadline is 7 September, so please send all papers and inquiries to papers at civilfairsassoc.org. Welcome back to the 1CA Podcast. Gentlemen, I wanted to ask you about three recommendations that you included in your paper. The first was to establish a Joint Theater Civil Military Operations Center, Joint Theater CMOC. Could you explain to the audience why that new structure is needed and also try to mention why multiple CMOCs in a theater do not share information and how your proposal would try to help that uh, situation? Yeah, so, and again, we'll go back to uh, to our most recent deployment in support of USRAP. And what we're seeing is the, the global force management process and the way that FTNs are generated and missions are sourced is there's goodness and badness that comes out of the current global force management process. The problem that we were seeing is that civil affairs teams were being sourced from USA KPOC, from uh, the 85th Civil Affairs Brigade, and then from also from the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade. Now, that by itself wouldn't be a problem. However, as they were creating these mission requirements, the FTN for the missions were going down through different entities. They were going down through ForceCom, they were going down through reserve, the Reserve Command, and then down through Special Operations Command. And you were sending CMOCs in support of those teams and in support of those missions in, in Africa to different places. So in, in the case of the reserves, they had set up a CMOC in Djibouti under uh, Sejoto Horn of Africa. The 95th Civil Affairs Brigade had funding and authorities for a CMOC in, uh, in Baumholder under Saka. And the 85th Civil Affairs Brigade had funding for a CMOC at USARAF in Vincenza, Italy. In a, in a lot of cases, you had teams attacking the same lines of effort to counter Boko Haram in West Africa, say, uh, but their CMOCs were located in completely different countries under completely different bureaucracies, and they were using entirely different SIM platforms. When you look at the CMOC and what it's designed to do, which is network analysis, uh, anal uh, analyzing uh, the human domain neutral networks, and how they interact with, with friendly and with threat networks, it makes it really difficult to do when they're working under completely different commands, trying to get after the same problem 
but with different resources and using different civil information platforms. So our proposal in our paper to, to get away from that, and I should add, by the way, that you know we're not trying to beat up on AFRICOM uh, because both of us have experience in CENTCOM and, and, uh, and UCOM, and the bureaucracy and the global force management system basically leads to the same problem. What we're uh, proposing is to bring all the CMOCs together uh, under one roof so that the teams, regardless of the authority, the funding and authorities that brought them into country, as they said, reporting back to the CMOC, uh, the CMOCs can share information uh, across the COCOM. So that, that one central CMOC would simply have to know who the players are and where they are, you know, in, in countries and solicit information and know when they're getting it, who it's coming from, the context in which it's submitted, and then go through the process. That's right. And I, I think one other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that, you know, we're in the, we're in the business of building relationships with, with people. Uh, and the State Department and other interagency partners, when they send somebody to a, to a foreign country, they send them there with their families, you know, for two or three years at a time. The military, we're a lot of times on six-month rotations or eight-month rotations. And we're able, I think, because of our training to still make those relationships and develop our understanding of the operating environment. But where we really saw, you know, from our analysis, the need for continuity was in the CMOC because a team is focusing on one small area, whereas a CMOC might be focused on all of West Africa or the continent of Africa. And the level of knowledge that that takes uh, of the, the different actors in the area, the lines of effort and everything else, it's really hard uh, to build that le- level of subject matter expertise over a six-month rotation. So the other benefit we saw to standing up a joint theater CMOC uh, would be that you could have positions there that were permanent uh, assigned parts as opposed to just doing you know six- to eight-month rotations. Valor, I wanted to ask you about another recommendation that you had in the paper, and that was to designate a warrant officer program and your team had written about how this idea was discussed for years. I, I just had not heard about it in the past. Why hasn't this idea progressed, and do you think there's any traction today for it? Um, like you said, it, it's been something that's been discussed um, in a lot of different uh, capacities and roles. Some people favor having uh, the idea of having a warrant officer that is a uh, civil targeting expert that can work on um, different echelons of staff. Um, some people uh, favor a, a warrant officer um, that is more of it down on a uh, CMOC level, team level, um, someone for continuity. And a lot of that is derived from the fact that the civil affairs, your career moves so quickly that you don't spend a lot of time um, operational. And so, so much knowledge is, is lost, not able to be, to be used um, during any given deployment. So th- there are a lot of different styles or, or methods that this has been proposed to to go about. But I don't think it's moving for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the main one is just that it's difficult to stand up a, a, a one-officer program, uh, period. You know, they would have to create the actual school over at SWIC um, and the, the curriculum, everything like that. And then it would, it would move into or it would put pressure on our 
before, and it's kind of going through some things right now as it is. I, I don't expect to see any movement on this until there's some more stability in, in the bed seal numbers. Okay. I wanted to ask you guys as well about another recommendation you had in the book, and that was to modernize civil affairs doctrine. What would you say are the gaps in doctrine today that need to be filled or updated? So I think there's a, there's a lot of room for or a lot of opportunity in phase three operations. So right now, the 95th in particular has established themselves as sort of the phase zero force of choice for building partnerships on the ground and linking subnational and national government. Doctrine, though, is less specific when you look at our core tasks on what civil affairs teams specifically do in phase three and phase four. Uh, so one of the things that 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion right now is, is working on um, is the idea of a combined arms team. So if you look at uh, the future of war and the, the possibility of a, a war with a, another state actor. As the, the forward line of troops uh, moves forward, you have to establish civil security and governance as they move forward. And traditionally, this might leave the commander with kind of a difficult choice, the maneuver commander, where he has to cut off portions of his maneuver elements to uh, pull security in the rear. And really, our argument is that that's not beneficial for the maneuver commander because every every soldier on the line matters. And then also, you know, as we've seen in Afghanistan and some other places, maneuver elements—they're very good at what they do, but their their primary job is not governance and security, establishing relationships, assessing you know local infrastructure, and really leveraging relationships to achieve long-term stability. So our, our recommendation is sort of a partnership with the, the military police and maybe some other, some engineer assets and, and uh, other elements from the military to lead that effort. The effort for creating the pockets of security and, and stability in, during phase three. That's right. Well, gentlemen, we wanted to close the conversation with a final question about how others in the civil affairs community could submit an issue paper for consideration like what you did for the uh, volume four issue. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, I, I would have to say, you know, with the off-tempo of um, civil affairs teams right now, uh, I know how difficult, you know, Valor and I are both incredibly busy and uh, and we understand how difficult it can be to find time to, to write a paper. With that having been said, we consider, I think we learned a lot just by answering the, the call for papers from the Civil Affairs Association and then definitely um, learned a lot that we could take with us back to our units from our time going to the Civil Affairs Symposium in Chicago and actually presenting our paper and listening to other papers that were being presented. You know, to be fair, too, the Civil Affairs Association is not the only uh, only organization right now soliciting active duty service members for, for papers. I think there's a, a large realization across the force that there's some gaps in knowledge and some ways that we can improve doing business, uh, especially with the, the operating environment and the, the security landscape that we're seeing right now. Uh, I just want to jump on that as well. Um, there, there are a lot of hurdles to, to doing that. Like we, we had to 
concept, Brainstorm, uh, partner with uh, our other uh, co-author, Sean Acosta, while he was in Africa, and, and really do a lot of work while we were deployed and working. But um, I would recommend people not be discouraged by that and actually, uh, you know, put forth the effort because being at our level, um, at our echelon, getting these deployments fresh, we, you know, we're on the, the actual edge of what's happening um, and developing. And, uh, you know, just getting your opinion out there, getting your thoughts out there uh, for, for people, especially uh, people that maybe may be higher up um, to hear and chew on, even if it may not be that good or even if it's great, it could win. That's value in and of itself. And I think that uh, more people should do it. We uh, submitted for this uh, particular call for papers. There were surprisingly few, and I think that given the size of our force, and I think given the incredible amount of intelligence that are in this community, uh, of the people in this community, I think that there should have been a lot more, um, a lot, a lot more competition. So I would recommend that anyone, if you have a thought, if you're, if you're running some operations, and you know something just keeps pulling up, and you, you could write something, I, I would go ahead and do that. Clearly, the fact that our paper won means that there are a lot of really smart people out there who are not writing <laughs> You guys put together a great paper. The two of you and Sean Acosta, uh, a name people would recognize, uh, also guests on the podcast. Um, I really hope that people will take you up on your advice and recommendations to submit their work for consideration in the issue papers that are collected by the Civil Affairs Association and, and published by PKSOI or other publications that are out there, as you mentioned. Val Breeze and Jared Redman, you together with Sean Acosta, wrote a paper titled Beyond Hearts and Minds, Transforming the Civil Affairs Regiment to Consolidate Gains in 21st Century Warfare. This was published in the Volume 4 issue of 2017-2018 Civil Affairs Issue Papers, titled Civil Affairs, A Force for Consolidating Gains. This was published by PKSOI, uh, Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute. For listeners, you can find a copy of this and their other publications at pksoi.armywarcollege.edu. Valor and Jared, thank you very much, and uh, glad you guys were here on the 1CA podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having us. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.